Well, please turn with me to Judges chapter 3. I've limited myself here in uh, terms of our time, so we'll try to work through this a little quickly. But Revelation, or Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, it is a shorter passage to read uh, this morning, so hopefully that will help us. But so far, we've seen two introductions. We've come to this passage um, having uh, seen chapter 1 into chapter 2, verse 5 as that political decline of Israel, and then chapter 2, 6 through uh, 3, 6, we saw the religious decline of Israel. And now we come to the opening judge, the first hero, if you will, that's represented in the, in, uh, in the form of Othniel, uh, our first judge. And we called this title, we titled this sermon, The Paradigmatic Hero. Uh, he will serve as a paradigm or a representative example of all the judges that will follow. Um, this is sort of the, uh, you know, when, when you first learn to play a game, Right, you sit down and you explain the rules very carefully. You don't, you don't probably get in uh, to a lot of discussion about it because you, you sort of just lay out the groundwork and then you say, Here's, here, let's just play the game and, and let's play it slowly and we'll explain it as we go and it'll, make, it'll start to make more sense if we do it that way. Well, this is sort of that first game. Right? This is an explanation where all of the categories are present. There's not a whole lot of discussion in between each category or each cycle. Um, and, but what we will see very clearly in this passage is that there is the people doing evil before the Lord. They, they commit evil. They apostatize. They depart from God. And so he sells them into the hands of a, of a Canaanite king, of a, the king of his neighbor. And then they cry out, and the question we looked at last week in that religious decline of Israel was we, we questioned whether that crying out was true repentance. Just mourning does not mean that you're repentant. Just being sorrowful, right? You can be sad about the consequences of your sin and not really sad that you offended your creator, right? That you've offended your maker. And so crying out in repentance is a different thing and it has a lasting impact in the life of a nation, whereas we see Israel, they cry out, and then as, uh, in their cry of despair, God delivers. God sends a deliverer to them, a judge, who saves them and gives them rest, but then as soon as that judge dies, they enter back into rebellion and apostasy. <clears throat> so that's the, the cycle that we'll see very clearly in this passage what preserves Israel during this downward spiral is really the discipline of the Lord. The Lord's kindness in judges is evident even in his chastisement of them, even in his judgment. Right? There is a kindness that is revealed. God is accomplishing his redemptive purposes through intentional acts of discipline. This is... An application of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. Uh, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So repeated opportunities for Israel to be trained by the discipline of the Lord reveals his kindness. 
Right, so chastisement is ultimately followed by rescue in the form of these judges who served really primarily as deliverers. That's the, the, the um, verb that is used to describe their actions more than anything else. As we see these judges, they came to deliver the people, to save them instead of sort of uh, being, serving as civil magistrates or leading them, right? serving as a judge over their affairs. Uh, they primarily are coming as political uh, or as, as deliverers or military defenders of the people. Right, so again, Othniel here serves as this representative example of all the subsequent judges. Uh, and what we'll see very clearly, because there's lack of description about the judge and about a lot of the, the different categories, it's just sort of laid out for us. What's emphasized is the hand of God. That it's not so much the judge that's to be lifted high, right? It's, it's the work that God is doing through that judge. The darkness of Israel's evil is only eclipsed by the light of the Lord's compassion. Their darkness, their evil, is only overcome by the compassion of the Lord. That's ultimately what we're left with here, is, to, is that the emphasis upon the Lord's compassion. All right, so before we read this section of Scripture, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this book, and we thank you for this example that we have in Othniel of a judge that you raised up to deliver your people, even in the midst of their rebellion. Lord, you brought him to deliver them out of their slavery and out of their um, rebellion and, and gave them rest. You grant them peace, filled them with, with hope, not because they deserved it, in fact, knowing full well that it would have to be done again and again and again until, until Christ would appear, who would be our true Savior, the judge who would never die, uh, ultimately, who would conquer death in his resurrection. And so, Lord, as we consider the life of Othniel, may it ultimately point us to Christ, and may we give you the glory for this redemptive work. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. Read with me, Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. As we consider this passage, we'll look at it from three sections, and we'll begin here with Israel's evil, verse 7. Israel's evil. You could break this down into two 
two categories. Their evil is described as, first of all, forgetting the Lord their God. They forgot the Lord their God. And that led to them serving the Baals and the Asheroth. This is the first generation of Israelites born in Canaan. How could they forget the Lord so quickly? How could they lose sight of all that God had done, all that he had brought them through? All we see, it's because they were too busy serving other gods. They had become distracted by the bells and the Asheroth. So last week, we considered what that fertility worship involved. And it's hard to even talk about, right? They were engaged in cult prostitution and eventually child sacrifice, as Psalm 106 describes. And it's hard to imagine that in one generation, the Israelites would be worshiping in this way, worshiping alongside their neighbors, having compromised so thoroughly, having apostatized from the Lord. It all seems to have occurred within 50 years of inhabiting the promised land, maybe even less. And so the, the first thing this emphasizes is, is that evil comes from humanity. Right? The evil of evils is the sin that they commit against God. That is the worst kind of evil in this world is, is our own sin. Sin strikes at God. In fact, it's a striking against God, wishing that God would cease to be God, wishing that he would not be holy, that he would overlook our sin, that we could minimize it and not feel guilt and shame for our sin. Right? That is the evil of evils, and Jeremiah Burroughs describes it like this. He says, you would think it is a horrible wickedness for any man to be so deep in lust with another woman as to wish the death of his wife. This would be a horrible wickedness. And yet this is in your hearts. To wish that God had no being so that you might have your sin. And in the moment of sin, that is what we are doing. That is the evil of evils. We are wishing that God would cease to be God so that we could indulge in sin. And that downward spiral is always, sin is always disruptive. It's always leading us away from God. It's always pulling us downward into the muck and mire, and it's always moving us away from salvation, away from what God wants to do in our hearts. That's why John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. But sin doesn't leave us neutral. It leaves us for the worse. And the ex explanation here is they forgot, first of all. And, and maybe you've used this in the past, and children, maybe you've said this before. You know, child, why didn't you clean your room? I, I forgot. I forgot to clean my room. Right, we use forgetfulness as an excuse. But what do we see here? Forgetfulness is the 
first thing that's being condemned by God. That's what leads to further rebellion, is forgetfulness. So forgetfulness itself is a problem. Forgetting to do something you're obligated to do is not an excuse, it's part of your condemnation. And left unchecked, forgetfulness will be followed by apostasy. So Dave Hatcher says, poor historians make great sinners. If you forget the past, if you forget what God has done for you, leads to great sin. And others have argued that amnesia leads to apostasy, right? And this is why it's so important how we teach history. How your children learn about our past is very important. Because it's sinful to teach history without acknowledging the sovereign hand of God. Right, to leave God out, to just sort of describe the facts and the events as if God had no part in it, which is what the vast majority of textbooks do today. Right? And so it's your job as parents to connect the dots for your children, to make them aware that God is sovereign, that God is overseeing history, orchestrating history for his glory and for our good. I think that's that's an important principle to learn from this first section. Israel's evil was the reason for the Lord's anger that we see in verse 8. The anger of the Lord. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. It grew hot against them. And he sold them into the hand of Cushan, Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia. And in fact, there's a play on words there. Mesopotamia in the Hebrew says Aram, Aram, Aranaharayim, which is parallel to Kushan Rishathayim, Aram Naharayim. Uh, that's what we translate here as Mesopotamia. And in fact, the, the literal definition of the name Kushan Rishathayim is the Kushan of double wickedness or doubly wicked. So it's a pejorative. It's uh, after the fact describing this king as someone who is doubly wicked who was the worst of the, the worst. This isn't what his parents named him, right? <laughs> oh, you're our son, doubly wicked. No, that's, this is the name that they are giving him after the fact as a pejorative against what he's done. So <clears throat> again here, the anger of the Lord is raised up. It's kindled against Israel for their rebellion, and so he hands them into this doubly wicked He gives them into the hands of this doubly wicked king. His anger isn't passive. Right? He's not simply removing his guidance from his people. He's actively pursuing his children through discipline. And he's actively working in their lives by bringing about a situation that would be very hard for them to live through. He brings hardship into their lives so that he might draw them back to himself. He actively sold them into the hands. Does this make God responsible for the evil that they endured? Well, not directly, but the Lord was perfectly just in doing this. Perfectly just to bring punishment upon Israel. They had broken their covenant vows, their covenant promises. But in fact, he had a larger purpose in doing this. He wasn't going to leave them there. 
he was waiting for them to respond, for them to cry out to him. Even if it was a shallow and a weak cry, he responds to them with compassion. But before it gets there, it takes eight years of affliction under the hand of Kushan Rishathayim. Eight years it takes the Lord's anger to, to manifest itself in their lives to ultimately bring them his compassion. Del Ralph Davis says this, it shows that the covenant God who has bound himself to his people will not allow them to become cozy in their infidelity. He will not allow you, if you're his child, to become cozy in infidelity. He used eight years of affliction and hardship to prevent the greater evil of their apostasy from occurring. He uses affliction to preserve them, to protect them from from their evil going unchecked. And it's an important truth to keep in mind. Whenever you go through devastating trials, which will be often in this life, and you're confused and you're unsure, why is God allowing this? You have no idea what God is preserving you from, what he's protecting you from, the ultimate preservation of your faith. And so even apart from those afflictions, you know that God is working, working out these things for your good. We see in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And you say, well, I don't know what light, momentary affliction is. I haven't experienced, what I'm going through is, 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 is not light. And it doesn't feel like it's only been going on for a few moments. And yet, in terms of eternity, in light of what God is doing, what, what awaits, the glory that awaits you, you in heaven, it is light and momentary in comparison. We need to keep that in mind as we go through trials. Does an angry God pose a challenge to your Christian worldview? Does that pose a challenge to how you see Christianity, how you interpret the God of Scripture? Very plainly, if if that is the case, maybe you haven't quite grasped the application of the very first point. Right, of just how evil our sin is. It's not until we see sin as the evil of evils that we'll find and be okay with any form of God's punishment. I will never consider that to be just as long as we minimize our sin. And although God's anger is never pleasant, it's a stark reminder of his covenant faithfulness to his people. The Lord only disciplines those he loves. He's a loving father to his children. Therefore, he does not spare the rod. And so for God's covenant children, his anger is always followed by compassion. And we'll close here. In verses 9 through 11, you see 
the raising up of a judge. Israel cried out to the Lord, first of all, in distress and misery, but as we've argued, not true repentance. They cry out to the Lord, and his response is to raise up a deliverer who saves them. God raised up a judge who broke the mold. He was not like the culture around him, even his own Israelite culture. He had he broke the mold. He exhibited political victory. He was victorious when all of the other nations were failing. He, he maintained a moral integrity, marrying Oxa rather than a Canaanite. Right? And he was preserved religiously as well. We read that he was led by the Spirit of the Lord. He was a Spirit-empowered judge. And so in every way, he was the antithesis of the culture that we looked at in this religious and political decline of Israel, right? Where they fail, he's victorious. Where they compromise, he stays true to God, led by the Spirit into victory. And so the result is that the land has rest or peace for 40 years. They do not experience war during this time. They find peace and rest. Israel enjoys Military peace after Othniel here, after the judge Ehud, Deborah, and Gideon. These judges in the first half, they begin to experience rest uh, after their victory. And we'll see that even that period of rest is lost near the end um, of the book. But it's only where the Spirit of the Lord is actively at work that the people have any sense of hope. Right, as with Othniel, time and time again, we will see spirit-empowered and anointed judges being led to victory. The temptation here is to consider Othniel sort of, and his testimony and his story, to be something we can just sort of gloss over. Right, let's get to the real exciting judges the ones that really have a past, that really have a story to tell. And how many of us wish our testimonies were a little more exciting, that we had experienced the depths of darkness so that we could then exhibit the mercy and grace of God in our lives. And yet this is the irony here. Othniel has a good testimony. He has a good heritage. He's raised up in a godly home. He preserves the faith. He's victorious. It's a picture of God's grace from beginning to end. In fact, it is the testimony we should covet. It's the testimony we should covet for our children. Not to the point that we would make much of ourselves. My children are great. No, it's, it's to make much of God who preserved and protected. Right? That is what we want to see. And so, secondly, I, I think it's important that we take a, a time here to recognize God preserving and protecting his people through political order, through military victory. We should thank God that we have governing authorities that maintain social and civil order. Rarely will we agree with everything our civil authorities do or say but we should absolutely be thankful to God for those authorities that he's given us, right? It's only a bonus when they are not a hindrance to our worship and our practice of faith. 
And so I think it's important that we remember to pray for our leaders. First Timothy chapter 2, 1 and 2 says, First of all, then I urge you, I urge that all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. We should be thankful to God, filled with thanksgivings for those who God has placed in authority over us, especially when they maintain peace. But more importantly, the Lord is, the, this picture of the Lord raising up a deliverer typifies his redeeming grace. Right? It's an example of, of the gospel. When we, an undeserving people, who are at the peak of our own rebellion against him, God sent his son to deliver and to deliver us from sin's oppression, right? from our enslavement to sin. And then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And what happens after he dies, we'll see the cycle repeat itself. The people do what's evil. His death was followed by rebellion. But Christ's resurrection is followed by the gift of the Spirit that then brings about an obedient people. Right Through Christ, we are provided with the empowerment to live a godly life. The gospel never leaves us neutral. Right? Sin never leaves us neutral. That rebellion against him will always drag us down and the gospel will never leave us neutral. It always picks us back up. It always brings us nearer to God. We are justified by faith and now, that, and now we live by faith. Walking in the spirit, no longer gratifying the desires of the flesh. Learning what true repentance is. Right? Truly mourning over our sin and apprehending the mercy and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Israel's evil provoked the Lord's anger, which was followed by the Lord's compassion. And one more quote from Jeremiah Burroughs in The Evil of Evils. He says this, never until sin is seen and sorrowed for as the greatest evil will Christ be seen and rejoiced in as the greatest good. That's the connection here. Never until sin is seen and sorrowed for as the greatest evil will Christ be seen and rejoiced in as the greatest good. That's why you have to maintain both truths. You can't just ignore justice and judgment and wrath and sin and rebellion and only talk about compassion and mercy and love. In order to truly maintain love, there must be discipline. Right? It's all a picture that points us forward to Christ taking and bearing the weight of our curse and wrath upon himself in our place and offering his righteousness in return. And so let us give him all praise. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent 